We'd like to thank LawPay for their support of this show. LawPay's online payment solution was developed specifically for lawyers to correctly separate earned and unearned fees so you can accept credit cards in compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. A proud member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, LawPay is trusted by more than 50,000 lawyers and integrated with more than 30 practice management solutions. Schedule a demo today at lawpay.com forward slash Texas demo. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. This is Rocky Deer. You know, one of my favorite times every month is when my Texas Bar Journal arrives in the mail. I know what it is about that magazine, but I rip it open and I just start I start perusing. And if you're anything like me, I first start in the very back. I go to the humor section to see what's back there. And there's, there's some there's good stuff. And by the way, Judge Buckmeyer, if you're listening up in heaven, this is a shout out to you. One of the best columns ever. And then I go through and I start start looking at articles and see who's on the move and what people are doing. And you find some great articles in there. In February of 2018, I read, I think, one of the most groundbreaking articles I'd read in a while, and it's called Lawyers as Leaders. And, you know, I guess maybe I just hadn't stopped to think about it, but yeah, as lawyers, we do need to be leaders. And as I read the article, I learned something new. Maybe lawyers are not leading the way they should. I want to get to the bottom of this, and I wanted to talk through these issues, and I was lucky enough to get the author of the article. We've got, we've got Leah Teague, and I, she's not just Leah Teague, she's Dean Leah Teague. She's an associate dean at Baylor University Law School. She's joined us today, and so I wanted to welcome Leah and talk to her about this very, very important concept. Leah, thank you for being here. Thank you, Rocky. My pleasure, my honor to be with you today. Lawyers as leaders, that's not something... We don't talk about it as much anymore, right? We're talking about billable hours, and we're talking about ethics and all these other topics. This concept of leadership, I, I don't know that we hear about it as often. What what made you write write this article? But we should. I, I agree. We should talk about it. Absolutely. So what kind of inspired you to, to, to go out and write an article about it? The leadership work that I'm doing, and I've been doing the, been in this space for about five years in terms of the lawyer as leader. And it really comes out of a concern for our country and for our profession. When you think about all the issues that are going on in our country across the nation, we really do have a leadership crisis. We need more leaders, not just people who are serving in those roles, but leaders who are going to be problem solvers, leaders who are going to look at a, the, whatever the issue is. They're going to think critically about it. They're going to do the analysis. They're going to think about what's the win-win possibilities here. How do we begin to move forward so that we all have a, a, have a better, brighter future? And doesn't that sound like lawyers? Isn't that what we are trained to do? You know, I think before I became a lawyer, I remember a lot of people kind of commenting that, you know, if you're a lawyer, you can go run for office, you can do all kinds of different things because it's a very versatile degree and it kind of lends itself to leadership. But interestingly, your article, and by the way, for those who are listening, if you haven't read this article yet, go back into the State Bar of Texas, you know, the Texas Bar Journal archives 
and go to February 2018. Read this article. It's pretty fascinating. And I got to tell you, Leah, this was this was very well written and it was concise. I mean, it, it didn't take me very long, but it was very thought provoking. You know, if you read this article, what you seem to be suggesting is that we as lawyers are not we're not stepping up to the leadership podium the way we used to and the way maybe we should. Is that is that a fair summary? You know, it is. At least, at least it's a concern. So if we think, if we go back in history and we think about our founding fathers, so many of them were, were lawyers. And so whether we're talking about, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the appellate lawyer who wrote our declaration, or the fact that the majority of those who signed the declaration, they were also lawyers. Or, or you think about some of our greatest presidents, uh, Abraham Lincoln, leading us through the most tumultuous time we've had in our, in our country, the time when we almost just divided forever our country and his leadership ability. Absolutely. And then even, you know, whether it's the Great Depression and World War II, if you think about President Roosevelt, a corporate lawyer from New York, and his his skills in leading us through some of our most difficult times. So our history in this country is filled with great lawyers stepping up to the role that was needed at the time. And, and what I know is it is our legal training that prepares us, the special skills that we have. In fact, if you think about uh, so many of us love uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and quote him often, but I have to tell you that when I, when I first heard that and he referred to lawyers back in, back in that day as the American aristocracy, I didn't understand it, and I'm not sure I liked it because it sounded so elitist. Yeah. But if you begin to think about that and you begin to understand, put ourselves in, in the, the time of that day, and his reference was to the European lords and their obligation. So they were privileged, yes, but they had an obligation to take care of their charges, Okay, so we bring that over to America. We don't have the nobility. We didn't want that system of nobility. But who's going to take care of the people? Who's going to take care of our governmental system? Well, he recognized that it was the lawyers in this country that were serving in that role. And to be a lawyer in this country, you didn't have to be born of wealth. It was a process of education and training, and quite honestly, desire and intention to make a difference. So it has really resonated with me that throughout history, lawyers have played that very important, vital role of preserving our system of of government. In fact, if you look at uh, our our own Texas Disciplinary Rules of, of Professional Conduct, in there, in the preamble, it says that we are, as lawyers, we are guardians of the law and that we play a vital role in the preservation of society. And so I, I think about that and I worry about our, our, our profession and the future of our profession and the future of our country if we as lawyers are beginning to forget that historically our role was not just as technical experts, not just as provider of legal services, but we played a vital role as um, 
you know, the wise counselors, the sages in the communities, the people, the ones that people came to when they needed advice and guidance. And that as lawyers, because of our skill sets, because of our attention to detail, our analytical ability, our critical thinking, and then our skill in advocacy, in persuasively communicating to others, that we were well-suited to step up into leadership roles in a community. So it, it, it kind of felt natural, but if you think about it, it really wasn't necessarily natural at all. So we're not talking about born leaders, uh, and, and that's, that's a concern. Some people think, well, you can't teach leadership. You're either born as a natural leader or you're not. Well, that's not really true. There are a lot of these skills, just as we've talked about, law school develops leadership skills. In fact, there's a dean who used to say um, a JD, a law degree, is the best leadership degree out there because of the training that we get. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit because, you know, we've talked about how historically, and in your article you give some statistics. You talk about how, you know, there was a time when I think you said 60% of of Congress was comprised of lawyers. 80%. 80%. Okay. 80%. 80% of Congress was comprised of lawyers. So what was it about legal education and legal training that lent itself to lawyers taking on those roles as opposed to say business people or, you know, any other profession or people that are, that are doing other things. What was it about legal training that flowed very naturally into leadership? Absolutely. Well, if you think about uh, law school, first year of law school, and again, this isn't necessarily uh, true back in the day when the apprenticeship and and self-study was the way to get to law, but these principles applied even even back then. So if we talk about in the 1880s, when we did have 80% of uh, the congressmen were lawyers, uh, just as an aside, there's another interesting um, uh, statistic about that period of time, 80% of Congress also had military experience. I find that fascinating as we begin to think about the role that the military plays in protecting our democracy. Oh, interesting. So at Baylor Law, we, we, we often talk about the, um, the kinship between military as the protectors of our, of our freedoms in a very physical way, and lawyers as the keepers of the rule of law and the protectors of our our liberties, our rights, our property interest in our democracy. But that was just you know, sort of a side. If we so, if we think about the first year of law school sure. or the beginning training for a lawyer, we start off with how do you think like a lawyer? Well, that's critical thinking. That's legal analysis. That is being um, looking at whatever the issue is. And thinking about it in a way that we're trying to figure out, okay, what is the problem here? And then what are the steps that we can begin to take to solve the problem? So first year of law school is all about uh, looking at whatever the issue is, cutting through the chase. And that's what we are known for when you think about all the lawyers that serve on community boards and charitable organizations. They all want lawyers on their boards because we, they know we bring that skill set. We are going to cut to the chase. We're going to listen to all that everyone says. And then so to boil it down to, okay, here's the heart of the matter. 
here's where we are, and then where do we go from this? So we think about, you know, that is clearly a, a significant part of what law schools have always done. And then there's the skill in advocacy, whether we're talking about oral communication or written communication, we are trained to think and to write and to communicate um, clearly, uh, succinctly, and and persuasively when that's appropriate. Um, Negotiation leading to compromise, to solve uh, whatever the dispute is, that's also part of what we do. But then I think if you add on to that and begin to think about while we're in law school, we are also thinking about values. And this is where the ethics come in. Our code of professional responsibilities, our our rules of ethics, we describe that to our law students as that's the outer boundary. That's, you can't, you can't go past those lines. But that doesn't decide who you are and how you're going to practice as a lawyer. So we encourage our students to think about what's your own set of values? Um, what do you believe in? And how is that going to inform and in, uh, and shape how you conduct yourself as a professional? So law schools ought to be thinking about that, ought to be helping students think through the value system. And, and then again, we're all making sure that the ethical constraints are there. So that alone may be different than other professions or other schools where there's not as much emphasis on or should be as much emphasis on, you know, ethics and, and values. And um, but, it's, but then I think there's another element to this. As we are helping our students um, begin to prepare for the role that they'll play in representing clients, we do push them to take broader perspectives as you will remember from you know your days of preparing for your moot court um our, your first moot court competition or argument sure we learned that we learn our side but then rocky what, what what do you have to do before you are ready to write that that brief or to make that argument once you've figured out your arguments what do you need to then do is this Socratic method? Am I getting called on in class? This is crazy. Well, no, but, yeah, and I, I was, I was going to say, I need to, good thing I drank coffee today. My goodness. But no, it, it, yeah, I, I mean, you know, of course, we, we look at what the other side has to say, and we try to make the best argument we can for them before we deconstruct it. Absolutely. And as we're doing that, you know, we have to think about, okay, what are the social implications here? Uh, Especially when we're talking about an uh, an appellate argument, and it's not just, you know, the facts, it's what should the law be? What, What should the answer be? We're taking into consideration social constraints, economic factors, political conditions of the country. All of those go sure. into the analysis and, and the preparation uh, for law school. So if you think about that, I mean, that, that is all leadership development. This is the part that alarmed me. And this is what, what I really wanted to kind of get your thoughts on is you say that over time, say from the, from the mid-1800s until today, that 80% of members of Congress being lawyers, it's really been whittled down to 40%. So we're now, we're now the minority in when it comes to national leadership roles. If you really kind of extrapolate from that, why is that? Why do you think lawyers have have lost that that position of leadership dominance, if you want to call it that? It is true that we in the 1880s we had 80 percent of um, congressmen, and they were all men then, uh, were, were lawyers, okay. and we're now down to less than 40 percent. And I've not 
seen the breakdown yet because that doesn't happen for a while. But, uh, you know, we just had an election. And there is no doubt in my mind that uh, that percentage of Congress members who are lawyers um, are, is going to be less than the, the 40%. I think we're going to have lost lost ground. And um, one of the reasons it'll it'll take a while to unpack that and figure out what the percentage is, fewer and fewer of the Congress members are self-identifying themselves as lawyers. So you really have to go and look to see how many of them have a JD, how many of them have law school in their background, mm. because that's what we're that's what we're looking for is it's that law school, it's that training that we're we're focusing on. Um, but so so back to you know what do I think's happening? Right. Um, I, th- I think there's several factors that are going into this, um, and uh, you know they are all concerning when you think about. And it really starts with the economic pressures that lawyers face today, and and you know I, I hate to say this because I'm I'm you know part of the legal education system, but the high debt load that so and it's not just law school it's higher education across the board uh, it is terribly expensive and we have students that are coming out of an undergrad plus a graduate degree whether it be you know law or medicine or engineering that goes on, I mean, whatever it is, they're coming out with 100000 plus in, in debt. And so when you think about where their emphasis and where their focus has to be, they're not thinking about volunteering. They're not, they're, because they're not seeing the benefits. And mm-hmm. I do want to get to where we talk about that. But they're not, they're not um, naturally thinking about, oh, I need to jump in and get involved and, and help in my community or run for public office. They're thinking about, I got this debt load I've got to service. And then from the law firm's perspective, from our legal, especially law firms, clients, clients are Mm -hmm. demanding efficiencies. So it is harder for law firms to justify the mentoring of their young lawyers that was so much a part of of our profession, going back to the truly apprenticeship, that's how you train, that's how you study, that's how you became a lawyer, to, you know, going back to, you know, prior to about the 1970s, where it was mm-hmm. much more prevalent that the the senior lawyers in the firm really mentored and shepherded their their young lawyers to make sure that they understood their their obligations as a as a professional and then to help them see the opportunities that would be available to them through potential leadership opportunities. So that's not happening. And I get it. We all get it. The firms are under such pressure to be as efficient as they can. So, you know, it worries me because students today don't come in with the same view of lawyers in society that I did when I went to law school so many years ago. So how do we fix it? You know, we've we've talked about we've talked about I guess the problem. You know, we don't have enough men- mentoring. We don't have we've got these economic pressures that kind of keep us from volunteering and doing the things that would help make us community leaders and maybe state and nationwide leaders. So what can we as individual lawyers or what can we as firms or we as as a profession what can we do to fix this? Well, you know, I think we, uh, and this is where my my energy, my effort is now. Law schools 
can step up and do so much more. So I'm working on that on on a national level, um, encouraging those who have been doing some leadership in law schools to to own it and and let's grow those programs. So it, it starts with law schools, and then I think there's some things that the, that law firms and and lawyers can do individually. But if we if we focus first on what can law schools do and why why is it so important for law schools to do it? Um, besides all these issues we've talked about in terms of concern for the country, concern for our profession, um, I, I think it is important. I mean, we have a self, we should be self interested here because when you think about what, what do law school applicants put on their personal statements as the number one reason they're going to law school. Can, can you guess what that might be? Can you imagine what that might be? If I had to guess, I'd say they, they think they're going to they're gonna make a good living doing it. But I hope that's not the number one reason. But that's, that's my cynical view, maybe, saying that that's making that my guess. And, and you're right. Without a doubt, that is important. And, and we in the law school say, you know what? If you are here because you want to make a good living, you, you know, you're, abs- that's, that's, you're absolutely in the right place. Sure. Because... There is so much benefit to going to law school, but you know most of our students that's that seems too self interested so I think that may be one reason why that is the not not the number one reason that they put, but we also know that very much as they're being realistic that is um utmost importance to them. But we still see in those personal statements the number one reason they say they want to go to law school is they want to make a difference, yeah, they want to make a difference. So if we as lawyers... That's good to hear. That's refreshing. Oh, it is. It is. (laughs) That's very refreshing. It is. Well, I'll tell you another bit of good news. Um, So what I was going to say is if we as, as a profession are not viewed as a direct route to leadership positions, to a direct opportunity to make a difference and to influence, then we're going to lose the best and the brightest. They're going to go do something else. If it's just about the money... They're gonna they're gonna find something else to do. So we have an, a vested interest in making sure that we as law schools are still viewed as the training ground for leadership, as the way uh, to advance your education, develop your skills, to put you in a position to not only take care of you and your family, but to also make a difference and feel good about the contribution that you're making to society. So we're still seeing that. And and the bit of good news is this last summer, well, it it depends on your perspective whether or not you think this is is good news. Uh, Last summer, law school saw a surge in in applications, and not only applications to law schools, but um, acceptance, applicants choosing to come to law school. And it was, you know, the best and the brightest across the nation. More of them were choosing law school instead of MBA or, you know, other advanced degrees, which was good news because we've been on a downward trajectory since about 2011. Sure, sure. And so in trying to figure out why that might be, um, the admissions folks around the nation uh, believed, and they've actually, they they labeled this as the Trump bump. Uh, oh, interesting. Those applicants that 
Yeah, who who whether so again this is sort of the depending on your perspective either they were concerned about uh what was going on with the administration and decided nope we need to jump in and to to advocate and to fight as we saw with the reaction to some of the immigration uh decisions that have been made and lawyers showing up to you know to help out that was sort of the reaction against some of the the um the regulations and executive orders coming out of our current administration. But then there's the other side of that. Uh, those who feel like, uh, you know, the administration's on the right track and want to step in and to be part of that. Either way, there it's resulted in more uh, very talented young people saying, I want to be part of the process and I'm going to go to law school. So, so that's, you know, that's the very good that news. That is good news. Here's the a question that often perplexes me because – this conversation is taking me back to when I was in law school, which was a long time ago, granted. But I was kind of the same way. I wanted to come out and, and do some very interesting and fun things, and I wanted to make a difference and shake things up. And then, you know, when you're trying to do that, you sort of get this headwind, which is the reality yes. of being a lawyer. Yes. And more often than not, what, what I found was I was battling against this reputation that lawyers had in the business community of being the naysayers. Yes. You know, so they said, well, you know, a client will say a business client will say, can we do X, Y, or Z? And they're expecting the lawyers to always say no, you know, because we're the, we're, we're the ones that want to protect them from any liability. So we say, no, you can't do that or no, you shouldn't do that. And so they see us as, as being just these extremely risk averse people that are keeping the business folks from innovating. So to what extent do you think maybe this inherent risk aversion that we have or this, this inherent caution that we exercise as a profession. Do you think that's playing a role in in diminishing our brand as leaders? You know, um, my background is business and, and tax. And uh, so as I'm teaching my students, I, I, we talk about the fact that lawyers uh, are viewed by our bis- by some business clients, those who haven't had good lawyers, sure. they view lawyers as deal killers. Because it's always right. The, I've heard that. I've heard that term. Absolutely, yeah. because you know, business owners want to do this deal, and all of a sudden, it's you know the lawyers say no, can't do that. And so, I, I mean, I get it. I understand. But but here's and so what I tell our students is students, laws, future lawyers, you don't want to be known as the deal killer. Of course not. You want to be known as the problem solver. So your answer is no, business client. You can't do that for these reasons because I'm 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 seeing the bigger picture. I'm looking four steps down the road at what might happen if you do this, and I want to protect you from that. So when you say as a as a lawyer, when you say no, it's no but. Here's how we do it. So that's the way we're teaching and training our students is your role absolutely is to protect that business client from future uh, consequences that they may not be thinking about. So you you need to raise the awareness and bring that to the forefront. But as you're doing that, never stop with no. It ought to be okay, but here's how we can solve that problem. Here's how we can get to a win-win or a, a partial win or a compromise or you know, whatever it is. So we as lawyers need to be thinking about ourselves in, in that respect and not just the risk-averse uh, naysayer can't do that because we see problems. I'm going to maybe throw out a, 
a hypothesis and or, or maybe a, a proposed solution. So let's say you're the business client and you come to me and I'm the lawyer and you ask me, you know, hey, can I do this? What do you think of this answer? And and, and, and you may shoot it down and say, no, that's that's totally that's totally wacky. Or you might say, you know, hey, sure, it's it's fine. But I'm trying to get my arms around what you're what you're teaching the students. So if I was to say, no, you can't do that because it's got criminal consequences. And so, you know, you could you could end up in some really serious trouble. So the answer is no. Maybe I'd say it only in, in, in that type of context. But if it's sort of in a gray area, what I might do is say, you know, Leah, yeah, you can. Here are the possible consequences of that action. Here's where it could go wrong. And if it did go in those directions, here's how we would have to fix it. Or here's where we might face some some uncertainties. Here's some other solutions that would avoid that. Now, in terms of your business goals, it might diminish them or change them by doing X, Y, and Z. So you're trying to you're trying to war game it and maybe give them give them a map of what they're facing. Do you think that's effective or is that also maybe missing a step? That's certainly in the right direction. So okay. when we're working with our students, we're absolutely, we, we tell them, and again, my area is business. I'm talking to my students who are going to represent businesses. Sure. And I tell them, you are the lawyer, you're the advisor. The client is ultimately going to make the decision mm-hmm. about what what the action is going to be taken. So your job is to help them see the possibilities in a broader perspective and, and see maybe even some, some angles they haven't seen yet and to, to explain the pros and the cons of each of these avenues. And then ultimately, not only is the client going to be the one to make the decision, you need to make sure they're the ones making the decision, that you're not making it for them. So we kind of talk Mm. about, you know, what is the role of the lawyer in in all of this? Because what we want the lawyer, because really what we're after is the lawyer being viewed not just as the technical expert, the person that you go to if you need a contract drafted, Mm-hmm. Because those are the things that, that uh, business people are now going, going, why do I pay a lawyer, you know, even $1,000 when there's an online version for $99? Why would I do that? So the value added by lawyers, and this is becoming even more important than it ever was before, the value added by lawyers cannot be just the technical providing of legal services or telling them where the rules are and where the boundaries are, it has to be as that that advisor, that counselor to help them see all the options and to come up with the best strategy. And then ultimately what, what you're really after is, and so here's where I tell the students to start. Start with, when the, when the client says, here's what I want to do, start with, okay, Tell me what you're after. Tell me what your goals are. Tell me about your business. Tell me about, you know, what you're trying to do now and where you're trying to get. Where are your goals? Because if you understand more about who they are, what are their objectives, what's their value system, and where are they trying to get, that's going to put you in a better position to be able to give them, lay out for them those options and to help them think through all of these, the, the possible consequences. And then they're business people. They're in the business of making business judgments based upon cost, risk, um, complexity, all of those concepts that go into decision-making. 
that's what they do as business people. You're just there to help guide them and to see perspective, both positive and negative, depending on what we're talking about. Does that answer your question? Well, it it does. And and what's kind of got me scratching my head is, if I'm hearing you correctly, you walk through this with your students in law school. This is not something that they're just having to learn once they're out in the field. You're teaching them this before they become practicing attorneys. Am I hearing that correctly? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I recognize Baylor Law has always been a, a little bit different. Um, you know, at Baylor, the, we started out talking about the first year of law school and the, the critical thinking, the legal analysis. You know, all law schools do that and do that very well, and we do. But for us, that's just the foundation. So historically, we've not stopped at that. We've gone to the practical application of the law. So learning the law, but also, okay, what does it look like and how do you actually do it? So that's why the conversation that I've described is just a natural part of what we do in law school because this is helping our students see, okay, this is you being a real lawyer out there someday with real clients and it's complex and you need to have a broad sense of of what your role is so that you are better prepared upon graduation to slip into that, especially since we go back to it's more difficult for the, the lawyers out in practice um, to have the they, – they just don't have the same luxury of time uh, and apprenticeship and mentoring that they did before. So we law schools have to step it up. We have to be doing more with our students while they're in school with us so that they're on a, a better footing and, and a little bit ahead of the game. And there's actually been uh, several studies done about the legal education. And, um, you know, it's been music to our ears at Baylor because this really is what we've done forever. But uh, one of the more uh, recognized reports is called the Carnegie Mm -hmm. Report. And what it said was there's sort of three levels to training um, development in law schools. First is that traditional legal analysis, critical thinking, learning to uh, to think like a lawyer. Second one is practical skills, application of what you're doing. And, and you know, law schools are beginning to really focus on that. There's a third level, and this is where this leadership development comes in. The third level is thinking about the ethos, th- thinking about the social implica- implications of who we are. So it's back to the, the role of the lawyer in society. What role do we play? What important critical role do we play? And so that report said, law schools, you need to be focusing on all three. Now, in that third level, law schools have been focusing on the ethics. I mean, we've had ethics required, professional responsibility required for decades now. So this leadership concept is just building on that. Okay, in addition to being ethical and being professional, we have an opportunity. We have an obligation, but we also have an opportunity to make a real difference in society if we recognize if we appreciate the role um, that we play and the opportunities that we have to, to make a difference. Well, and there's actually a fourth level to legal education that I think you might have... It's, it's actually not one that you would have known about. It's one I developed myself, and it was how to look busy. It's how <laughs> to look it. busy and look like you're studying really hard just so you can psych <laughs> out your fellow 1Ls. And I, I, I mastered that, and it, it certainly was reflected at the end of the year when report cards came out. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but 
Hey, it's it, that that one L year. It's all about the head game. We all know that. So <laughs> you're right. So no, you know, here's here's a question though that I think you touched on something earlier where you said Baylor has always been a little different. So when you're talking about this type of legal education and teaching leadership and teaching sort of the higher aspects of why we're learning what we're learning, is this something that Baylor is unique in teaching, or is this turning into a movement that? is kind of catching fire amongst other law schools. You know, it is turning into a movement. And in fact, I've, I've been associate dean here at Baylor Law School for 27 years, which is just um, uh, truly unheard of. Uh, we, we think I may be the longest tenured associate <laughs> dean in a law school in America. Um, we do know that our dean, Brad Tobin, who is just a wonderful leader, and we've had a great partnership for 27 years. He's been dean for 27 years. I've been associate dean for 27 years. We do know that he is the second longest running dean. There is a website that counts the days uh, of a tenureship for a law school dean, and there is a dean in New England who's been dean at that school for uh, 30 years. So Brad is at 27 years, um, which is phenomenal considering that the, the average tenure that you see on that website is three point something years. Oh, wow. So a lot of turnover. But but, but I, I say that because um, Baylor Law really is a special place, and we're here and we're committed, and we're working hard to be intentional about how we are preparing and training the next generation of Baylor lawyers. And it, it's through that long-term effort of me being in this position and looking at how we're doing what we do and then thinking about the consequence. You know, for years we have talked about the fact that Baylor lawyers we're, we're the smallest law school in Texas, except for the brand, the, the brand new one uh, University of North Texas has created. We're the smallest law school in Texas and always have been one of the smallest law schools in the nation. And yet when we look at our alums, they disproportionately step up and serve in leadership roles, whether it's within the state bar uh, or within their community, serving on school boards, um, as as you know, chair of boards of charitable foundations. I mean, it's just amazing to watch how our beta lawyers have uh, stepped up uh, to serve in those roles. And so, knowing that, I began to think more deeply about, well, why is that? What is it about our law school? What is it about law school that causes that to occur? And um, when I began to really think about that, I thought, you know what, we're doing this, producing these law, these leaders, but we're not being intentional about it. So what would happen if we were more intentional about it, especially in light of knowing the factors that are going on in the profession? We can't expect our law firms and our lawyers to have the time to do the mentoring and the shepherding and help them see this aspect. So um, I thought, you know, shouldn't we have a leadership class? This was about uh, five, almost six years ago. So, you know, what, what did I do? Well, I, I said, okay, what are other law schools doing? And when I did a search of all the other, you know, 203, 204, whatever we have now, law schools in America, I couldn't find a robust leadership development program. I could find it in business schools, couldn't find it in law schools. So, you know, that kind of, 
triggered a concern. At that point, I had um, met um, a, a woman who's a professor at Stanford Law, and uh, Deborah Rohde. She is well known in uh, legal education uh, for her work in on ethics and professional responsibility. She was part of that movement a number of years ago. She also uh, under, well understands the need of lawyers to step up and be leaders, and she'd just written a book. And uh, so I, I knew I'd met her through a, um, a, a we were on a panel, speaking on a panel together in, in, in kind of a different uh, environment. But I, we started conversations about this need for leadership development in law schools. So that she and I started down a path, and, and we, are, uh, we are working to find those pockets in law schools where people are doing leadership development. And we have just created, within our professional association, it's the American Association of Law Schools. So with the ABA governs us, but the American Association of Law Schools is our professional national organization. And uh, Deborah and I led an effort to create a section. And so we're now, though, I think there are now something like 109 sections in this national organization, and uh, and we're the la- the newest one to focus on leadership development. So you're right, Rocky, it needs to be a movement in legal education, and we are working hard um, to make that happen, and it's been such a delightful journey. We have met uh, professors and deans and former deans from law schools across the nation who understand, and you're right, and so we're, we're all working hard to get uh, law schools across this nation to step up and to recognize the need, develop the programming to help law students recognize their obligation and their opportunities, and then to help better prepare them for the role that they're going to play. This is great news. I mean, I, I must say I'm very encouraged and I'm glad that I'm glad that you're helping to lead this, this, this effort forward. You know, I, I would, I would love to, to keep up with this story. And so I think we need to, we need to maybe give it a little bit of time and have you come and give us an update at some point. Would you be open to that? I would love to do that. And you know, the one piece we didn't have time to talk about is why, um, I think this is so important for lawyers to begin to understand. You know, we've got some some major issues, uh, challenges to our profession, and one of them is burnout and a feeling of just you know, as a lawyer, I'm on, I'm I'm on this treadmill. I'm, it's it's a grind. You know, I I just I, I can't keep doing this. And uh, you know, I, I believe that this reawakening of the opportunities that we have. Uh, it can be a win-win for for lawyers, and especially for young lawyers. If young lawyers are trying to build a book of business, one of the ways they can effectively do that is to get out in the community and to be seen and to be known. And as they're out in the community and 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 volunteering and and stepping into these leadership roles, they're also developing the skill sets that we know the law firms want them to have to be a more successful, more productive uh, professional. So there's a whole other conversation we can have about the benefits of, of this in terms of for the profession. I think we need to have that conversation. So we, we definitely need to need to have you back on the show and we can, we can get an update and see where this develops. Leah, thank you so much for, for leading this charge and for helping to move this profession and, I guess, by extension, moving our society forward. Best of luck with this. Well, thank you. And again, such a, a pleasure to be here. And I, I do look forward to further conversations with you. Thank you for your work in, in 
presenting these important topics and trying to help strengthen our, our profession. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank my guest, Leah Teague, for joining us. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of LawPay. So thank you, LawPay. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.